Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. General George S. Patton Jr. was one of America's most successful and unconventional military leaders. From a young age, he believed he was destined to lead a great army. And after an eventful youth, where he would even compete in the 1912 Olympic Games, he forged an incredible military career during both world wars. But was he really America's greatest general? Well, I'm your host, James Rogers. This is the Warfare Podcast. And to discuss old blood and guts himself, we have his grandson, Bob Patton, on the podcast. A historian in his own right, Bob kindly invited me over to the Patton family home in Connecticut, New England, where we grabbed a coffee and sat down to discuss his grandfather's esteemed, if not slightly controversial, career, along with the conspiracy theories around his death. Here is Bob Patton on General Patton. Enjoy. Hi, Bob. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Not a problem at all. Thanks for having me. I'm in the Patton family home in Connecticut, in New England, in the United States. It is a great honor to be here. And to talk about your family history. The patterns, you've written a book on this and you've lived it as well. So what made you want to write that book on your family history? First of all, James, again, thanks for having me. But when I wrote The Patterns, it was the first book I wrote. It was 30 years ago now, and I've written, I guess, six since then, not about the family. But I had sort of circled it at a distance. You know, you have a very, very large figure. You know, he's my grandfather. My father also, George S. Patton IV, a military man. So this was a very large persona in the household. And you keep your distance as a youth because you need to form your own identity. And it's very easy to be subsumed by the past that way. And my father and mother were very careful about that. We were related by accident of birth to this famous General Patton, who was made more famous when I was uh, about 10 years old, when the Patton film came out and won an Oscar and George C. Scott. And many people even today remember that movie as just being a moment in cinema history. It It won the Oscars and it's a darn good movie. Yeah. Nevertheless, when I was thinking about how would I come to terms with this fellow and this family history, because there are military figures all the way going back generations, I said, I'll write about it from a family perspective. What can I learn as a young man is when I began the writing of it about character and about his character and how can I incorporate in that in my understanding of myself and of the world, really. So I had enough remove from it and enough kind of care in not wanting to just create another, you know, complimentary portrait, but to understand him and maybe in a certain way give him dimensions that, at least to me, would make him almost more admirable and more certainly understandable. And ways to identify with him. But how was he described to you by your father, his son? How was he presented to you as a man, as a leader? Who was he? It's a really good question because I really got the story of my grandfather from really two sources. My father, again, a career military man, ultimately a major general uh, when he retired, From him, I got a strong understanding of 
General George S. Patton Jr. as a military man? What were his gifts? What were his strategies? What were his particular styles of leadership and war making? So my father was very good on that side. He was born rather late in the marriage. So he had a kind of um, an upward looking view of his father. And as World War II was coming on, he didn't really have the intimate understanding. You know, he had just a boy's admiration for a father who became very, very famous very, very fast. So he had more of an understanding of old blood and guts. Exactly. That persona was very much what my father understood and, and recognized and saw the advantages of it as a leader and disadvantages sometimes. His older sister, almost a decade older, my aunt, Ruth Ellen Patton, Totten was her married name, was the one who really introduced me to the man as I began to inquire about what made my grandfather, because he died long before I was born. Because there are so many layers to general Patton that don't seem to mash up to me, because he's an incredibly well-educated young man who is an Olympian, right? Yes, 1912 Olympics. He competed in the pentathlon, and I believe, as I recall, he finished fourth. And one of the events, uh, his best event was pistol shooting. And he had shot his pistol, and they said one of his rounds completely missed the target, which he said was impossible, but he was deducted points, and consequently he finished out of the medals. And he said, I would swear on my mother's grave that one bullet went exactly through the hole in the middle that the others, and therefore I was not given credit for this excellent shot that I did twice in a row. So that was his story, and he's sticking to it. But nevertheless, my aunt, Ruth Ellen, was able to give me a different dimension. And she was very, very careful about that because she, as she often said, she said, when I was a girl, I didn't like my father very much. But later I began to truly love him because I understood his complexities and his contradictions. And in a quick nutshell, James, I would say this about General Patton. We end up with the movie. We end up with Blood and Guts. And this is the movie captures that fantastically. But that is a creation. That is a persona that is so contrary to what the boy was Georgie Patton. He was called Georgie, which is a kind of a, a diminutive, you know, nickname. People would get offended when I say, how could you call your famous grandfather Georgie? But that's how he was known within the family because he was always, as I wrote in my book, childish or childlike, depending on your politics. Yeah. But nevertheless, he was always a boy and always had these elements of energy and naivete and optimism and self-drama that we have in youth. So Georgie captures him a great deal. And my aunt really brought that part of his character to me. But he always wanted to be a military leader, didn't he? He was desperate for battle. You have to go back to his youth to understand the roots of that dream, which actually set in at exactly age seven, where he deviated from, instead of wanting to be a fireman, as what little boy doesn't want to grow up we to be a fireman, be a fireman he then announced to his family at age seven that he was going to be the greatest general that ever lived. And if he didn't, then he wanted God to damn him forever. That was his announcement to the family. And now where the hell did that come at from? Age at age seven. And But we see the roots of that very, very clearly from two sources, but they begin with his father. His father was George Smith Patton II, and his father was a little boy who was the son of a Confederate Army, first of all, a pre-war, pre-Civil War lawyer, who then became a Confederate Army colonel. And he was a wonderful father to his young son, George S. Patton. And this first George S. Patton was killed at age 33 in 1864 at the Battle of Winchester. So now you have this little boy my grandfather's father, who is orphaned, or at least loses his father. And so his father becomes this glorified figure who died in the lost cause. He wanted to be a military man himself. That is my grandfather's father. Couldn't, because you couldn't make a living there, so he became a lawyer and always was sort of frustrated that he could not carry forward his father's military couldn't prowess. Step in those footsteps. So he began to tell stories to his little boy, Georgie, about Colonel Patton. Now, was he great? Was he not? He appears to have been a very, very good officer, but this is clearly seen through the lens of an admiring son. In addition, there is my grandfather's father's uncle, brother to the first George Patton, who was also a Confederate Army colonel who was killed at Pickett's Charge in at the Battle of Gettysburg. So now you have these two personas, both of them placed in a kind of pantheon of glory and prowess, and all with this backdrop of tragedy, that it was a lost cause. And we are glad that they did not win and, and you know perpetuate slavery, of course. But as men, they were admired figures. So you have the young orphaned boy of the Civil War, 10 years old when the Civil War ends. He now has to become a lawyer. He's also a classicist. He's very, very scholarly in ancient history. He is um, Greek and Latin. He can speak and write. And he begins to tell stories of Greek mythology, Roman history, in the same breath as tales of his father and uncle. And the little boy Georgie begins to meld them in his mind. So first of all, there's Hector and Achilles, and then there's my 
grandfather, the Colonel George S. Patton, number one, and his brother, Waller Taswell, who died, you know, bearing arms in this sad and terrible lost cause. And they both, in Georgie's mind, begin to be equal. And he says, I can bring them together. I can bring the classical glory of Hector and Achilles and the like, and the lost glory of my grandfather and my great uncle. And I can restore my father's lost dream of wanting to carry it forward because he was not both in terms of his career as a lawyer, but also temperamentally, he was not geared for that. He was just a stay-at-home dad, really. And Georgie Patton, my grandfather at a very young age, and he would never have articulated this, but we understand it now, saw these two threads and said, I will bring them together. I will restore the family to the lost glory of the Southern aristocracy, leaving aside slavery and, and the abomination that it is, that idea of Southern plantation society and that these were cavaliers, they were descended from immigrants from the UK, and we will carry that Anglo greatness forward. And he, he was determined to do it. And once he decided it, he never deviated until the day he died. I mean, we'll put that that extreme parental pressure to one side for a second mm-hmm. and fulfilling the ambitions of, of the father. Yes. No matter who you are, that all of that family history and that sort of storytelling is going to light one hell of a fire under you. And it does push him for the entirety of his career. He does make it into West Point, doesn't he? He does, but it, it takes him ultimately six years to graduate college because he could not get into West Point initially. He was homeschooled, to use the more contemporary term, until he was 12 years old because he was seen to be sickly, a little um, uncertain. He ultimately, we now believe, it wasn't a diagnosis at the time to be dyslexic because throughout his life, we see all of his writing, uh, you know, he has the classic inverted letters. He used to say, oh, my letters are much more interesting because I spell words differently every time. And, you know, he... <laughs> that's, so, that's one way so, of putting it. No, exactly. So he would refer to himself satirically, particularly in his school and college years, as dumb, D-U-M. He said, I didn't do well in this course. I'm, I must be dumb. And we really understand now because he wasn't dumb. We know now he was a very bright guy, but he was almost certainly dyslexic. So he was kept at home. He was coddled. And then when he finally was going to go to university and he wanted to be a military man, so he couldn't get into West Point. So he went to Virginia Military Institute with the family's Virginia roots that made that an an easy entry. And then after one year, he transferred to West Point, but promptly failed. And so had to tell you how basically two freshman years to get through. And um, he did. He graduated, but he was one of the oldest members of his class of 1909, which also separated him from the pack. He was never popular at school. He was very popular with the ladies, but he was never popular in because he was always going to be a lone wolf. And his father said that. He said, don't be too close with people. You must stand apart and set yourself up as somewhat better or certainly somewhat different. And so he took that six years of education where he Barely got through academically, but he was rated number one in all the military aspects. And his first mission after he got out, and he got married quite early, was to decide what his leadership style was going to be. And it's very interesting. He wrote at one point from West Point. He said, I can go to the library and I can find volumes on logistics and tactics and strategy. I can only find pages on leadership. So he was very interested in what makes a leader. And he you can read, you, we have many books and there are many at West Point that were from his library and he, he annotates all through and he always circles leadership, leadership. An example of, uh, say, Ulysses S. Grant during the Civil War, maybe dismounting in the mud and, and, and taking rations with some of the frontline troops and, and sharing some of the suffering. He, and he would write leadership next to that and as he was reading because he was looking for what makes a leader. And he was known for that, wasn't he? He was known for leading his troops from the front, a really rare thing to do for a general during the Second World War. Particularly early in his career when he was wounded in World War I as a colonel, shot through the groin when he was in front of the column. Later in World War II, he was smart enough to know that it doesn't help the cause to have you know a, a, a three-star, four-star general killed, but nevertheless, he was always trying to get up front. But even then, he would develop rules for himself. He said, you should not go to the front when things are going well, because then it looks like you're trying to take credit. He said, you should not go always to the front when things are going badly, because then people will get tight. He said, you have to pick your moments. And he was once asked during World War II, what makes a great general by a reporter? And I think the reporter thought it was going to get sort of chapter and verse about, well, you have to do this and chain of command and all this. And he made it very simple. What, what does it take to be a great general? Not to be beaten, period. And what that says is, 
There's no rule about how to lead. One can look at athletic coaches, for example, and we all see on the sidelines, some coaches scream and yell, and some coaches are very, very composed in their manner, no matter how things are going. And some get results and some don't. So there's something intangible that goes along with those outward performances. And so Patton, as a very young officer, said, what will be my style? And in 1915, it was beginning to develop before then, but when he went on the Texas border of Mexico in 1915 and 16, he saw a very old Texas Ranger walking around dressed like a peacock with a big 10 gallon hat. And what do you know, ivory handled pistols who also swore like a sailor. And cause my grandfather, who's now later known for swearing. In fact, general Patton once said a gentleman should be able to swear nonstop for three minutes without repeating himself. Um, <laughs> and so he looked at this guy and he saw him cussing out his subordinate Texas Rangers. And he was using F bombs and all the rest and letting it fly. And he said, that can work for me. So he went and he, got a pistol and he had ivory grips put on it. That was the first time the ivory handle pistol came about. He was in a gunfight in Mexico in 1915 where he killed two Mexican bandits and he promptly carved two notches in the ivory grip of the handle. And that's very coarse. That's very vulgar. One would, these days, one would never do that. It's just such a, you know, it just violates our sensibility. But for him, this was the persona. You've got to be that way. So Here's this mild-mannered, sickly boy who is very athletic and very tall, but he had issues, who now says, I'm going to begin to piece this persona together. And as he said throughout his career, he said, leadership is a performance. You are an actor on a stage, and I'm going to act this role. It works for me. And ultimately, what made it work is that it, it proved authentic to the man. You know, and he then, not only outward, he talked about the accoutrement of being a warrior. In the movie, there's the famous scene where he makes all the men uh, put their leggings on and put their ties on in the front. And he says, he says, I'm sorry, you have to do it because a man who is dressed as a brave man will fight as a brave man. So he believed that the, you, know, you, fill the, you fill the persona out from the inside and from the outside, the costume, and then from the inside. And the inside element is the most interesting aspect because this was where Patton developed what he called the warrior soul. Well, I was going to ask, so this is the point where he must start to believe the character so truly that it becomes him at his core. Absolutely, because otherwise it's not authentic. And your subordinates, your army, will detect the inauthenticity of it, and they will not respond. So this is the most interesting element of his development, because he brings the outside costume, the persona, which is simply an appearance, you know, it's an aspect that he builds. But within, to costume. make... It's a costume. And he says it's this performance. And this is almost like the most extreme levels of method acting. Very, very much so. And at the very end of his life, he said, you know, I'm the same actor, but the stage has changed. This is after World War II, when he realized he was going to be a fish out of water, and as, as would have happened had he not died in 1945. But to circle back to the putting together, now he's got the outside, the costume. Now what makes the inside match that will make it authentic. And that's the warrior soul. And that's when he begins as a young officer to write poetry and also to put together this metaphysical view of himself as an eternal warrior. He grew up in the household with his parents, an unmarried aunt who was quite eccentric, but she was a spiritualist. She was, um, she studied world religions. She also studied, you know, seances and ghosts and Ouija board. And this becomes part of his understanding of the world. And he now begins to envision that he has lived many lives. And this was very real in his, in his mind that he has uh, circled around and he has been a warrior in every life. And he, in every life, he met a terrible end um, because he said the, he developed theories about this. He said, and he had five flashbacks, as he called them, of former lives. And all of them were in moments of dying in different, whether it was in the fields of Carthage in North Africa, whether it was on the retreat from Moscow in 1812 as, as a soldier under Napoleon. He said he woke up from a dream and he said, I was there, I was dying in the wagon and they threw me over the wagon because they knew I wasn't going to live. And he said, it was so cold, my blood turned brown in the snow. Now, it, it, he had these weird, very detailed, very detailed, detailed. And if you look at back in his middle years when he was really suffering from, you know, personal self-destructiveness because he felt that he was not going to be fulfilled in his destiny, he would have these flashbacks. And my theory, as I came to understand him, was they, they helped bolster him and his faith in himself when he began to falter in that faith. What do you mean by, by faltering during this period? What, what was his poison? His poison, when he came out of World War I, he was a 33-year-old full colonel who had received a Distinguished Service Cross, which is the next below 
the Medal of Honor, which is the highest um, uh, medal that one can win. It's not um, bad. It's not bad. And he received, ultimately received two in his career. My father as well. And also Purple Heart. He was shot leading a, leading a tank battalion in World War I, the first American tank battalion ever. He was shot through the groin and the, the bullet came out of his um, right cheek of his buttock. And between the wars, he would love to tell the story. And it became sort of a... Um, a soliloquy, rather out of something like from Henry V. He would be in, the, and he put his arm on the on the fireplace mantle, and he would tell the story of his wounding. Very kind of crass, and 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 you know, but he had enough self knowledge to be humorous about it. He was he. One of his sayings was, you know, the definition of a sense of humor is to be able to laugh at oneself. And he was really a very funny character. And he saw himself very much as a kind of a farcical figure. He wrote his bride-to-be. He said, I, you know, I'm not like other people. I'm crazy, but at least you you still love me, even though I'm crazy. So he knew these things about himself. But between the wars, coming back as a full colonel, quite acclaimed. First thing that happens is there's a reduction in force. An American army now shrinks. He is reduced in rank. To a major. As is common. Yes, it was completely common then. It had nothing to do with your merit. There was no meritocracy. And in fact, in those days, the military, the U.S. Army, was absolutely based on seniority. So the only way you moved up in rank is if someone at the front of the line died or left the military. So he stayed a major for 18 years. Um, and this was a frustrating time because there was this is the war to end all wars. World War One was over. This would there would never be another war. And this dream he'd had since age seven was not going to come to fruition. His he imagined. Had gone. So we go more to the family side of things. He becomes he's like a, a stallion in a stable. He's kicking the walls of the, of the stable, and he's just a pain in the ass to live with. And he drinks too much. He has a wandering eye. Um, his wife, who was a very wealthy Yankee heiress is basically toughened under him and becomes every bit as gutty and strong as he is to the point where she's saying, I'm not going to stand for this anymore. And she picks him up literally and figuratively through these middle years of, you know, the 1920s, 1930s, where he really is falling apart, except he keeps the eye on one thing, which is study. And he continues to study and he continues to try to become better in his own way, in his basement, in his library, in whatever way he can, in this paltry army and mothballs that he's now still affiliated with. And lo and behold, war does come. And he begins to track what's going on in Europe. And when he sees the Nazi blitzkrieg, he says, this is war. This is total war. We're combining air power, tanks, infantry. This is the future. Meanwhile, the United States Army was still in, in cavalry. There were horse cavalry in the late 1930s. And they actually thought this could, this, this could do the job. And he was very much affiliated with the horse cavalry. But he went back to his early days in World War One, and, and he said there were tanks. As a tank man, yeah. And in those days in World War One, tanks, and initiated by the British, who brought, I think it was called the Centurion at the time, yeah. I forget. And then there was the, the Renault tanks of France, and they were initially called land ships. They moved very, very slowly, and infantry would move behind them, and they were essentially moving cover. They weren't considered to be this sort of attack element. They were just slow-moving and safe. And, well, and then it was JFC Fuller who pioneers these tactics of offensive tank yes. movements, which are not adopted so much by the British. They're adopted by the Germans. Fuller and then Aidan Chaffee in America were the ones that really saw that there's something here, and we can't credit Patton entirely, and probably more to Fuller and Chaffee, what seems now a very simple leap, but it was not clear at the time, tanks were horse cavalry. They were shock and awe. They were what you used to break through and, you know, you get your breakout point with your tanks and then the infantry pours through. Or you use them to maneuver to get behind. And people didn't see that at first, that that's what tanks could do. And Patton and others were the ones that says, this is an attack element. This is shock and awe. And this is how they should be used, not plodding on a forward line, just moving, you know, kilometer by kilometer on a broad front. And that simple leap changed military history forever. And Patton was very much in the forefront of that. And that's how he made his name ultimately, because of maneuverability, flexibility, quickness, and always aggression. And so that persona that he created beginning in boyhood, from the outside in at first, with costumes and profanity and a uh, fancy uniform and ivory handle pistols, and then he created the authenticity behind it, which was the warrior soul, and he made them come together in the persona that we now know of as Blood and Guts Patton. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. 
You'll hear how Codebreakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists and uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race, I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Well, he was very successful in that persona. I mean, we don't have the scope on this podcast to go through every single one of his victories during the Second World War. That would take us five or six episodes. But we know that he did go through North Africa, through to Sicily. He was operating mainly on the continent of Europe and led through those major battles. In fact, my granddad was in North Africa and Sicily as a Coldstream Guardsman. Wow, that's fantastic. So they were... Very different ranks. My grandfather was it's a soldier right. in the Coldstream Guards, but they were there. I'm sure I would have been a bug private right along with him. But I um, definitely would have been. I'm not sure I would have made it off the ships. Anyway, when it comes down to Patton's history and his greatest moments during the Second World War, is there one that stands out for you? Well, the Battle of the Bulge was really his ultimate moment because thanks to Eisenhower bringing him back, because Patton, as you know, had slapped soldiers in Sicily, and he was immediately... Uh, well, he was, he was moved from leadership. Right. He was stripped from command. He would have been the front runner to lead the Normandy invasions on the American side, you know? And the Germans presumed that he would be. So when Patton was stripped of his leadership, and he was brought and, and was in Britain, and they decided to use him, they being the Allied command, Eisenhower, as a, as a foil, as, you know, with the Operation Fortitude, which was to build the phony army around... Yes, they moved Patton down and around in front of the press to show that, you know, this person who was meant to be the leader of the invasion was preoccupied doing other things. Exactly. And, and Patton saying, apparently going to lead an invasion of Calais. And meanwhile, was the, the real strategy was to invade Normandy, yep. which was farther away and seemed less likely as a coastline to strike. And Patton was very effective as a ruse, but that was not what he wanted to do. And once the Normandy landings were successfully conducted, there was they were still trapped. They couldn't break out. And that's where Eisenhower 
And it saved Patton's life, saves Patton's career, said, you know, I think this guy might help us. And he pulled him back. And that story is told in the Patton movie and all the biographies where Patton was, thanks to Eisenhower's patience and foresight, was given one last opportunity to lead what became the Third Army, 26 divisions, which is a, a large, large contingent of forces, and to just break out, go around the southern flank of the Nazi defenders as they were retreating. And the Patton legend was born. And then, of course, in the uh, winter of 1944, the counterattack that was the Battle of the Bulge through the Ardennes. Patton was engaged to the south in battle, and we can see in his diaries, it's fascinating. He's saying, even before it's really known what's going on, he's saying, something's up. You can see in his diary, something's going on to my north. I need to start paying attention. So once it was determined that they were coming in force, they being the Nazis, the Wehrmacht, and they overran Bastogne. They did. They crashed through the American lines. But right. out of that great, I suppose you could call it, the edge of a defeat comes Patton's moment. Well, he was able to pivot his entire army to the north, pull out of one battle and move to the north and send a spearhead 4th Armored Division up north. And it was really quite a magisterial move of military arts. I mean, he really, it took everything. It, re- it took everything that he had, something I can't even really appreciate what yeah. is involved there to pull out of a battle and then, you know, in the dead of winter and move north. But he was such a character. He was saying, listen, he said, let's not rush this. Let's let the bulge get bigger. He said, let them come forward and then I'll get in behind them and we'll end this war six months earlier than it ultimately turned out to end. And that would have saved countless lives, not to mention all the terrible concentration camps and how many, you know, lives of, you know, of, of Jews and others that would have been saved. But history, you know, we, we don't want to be, you know, backward looking and be armchair quarterbacks. That's not fair. But anyway, that battle of the bulge moment was certainly his time. But this is the last part I like to leave you with is if you look at him from a personal side, as I do, that seven-year-old boy that had this motor inside him, which was going to be unforgiving. I mean, he literally wrote down, I pray God to damn you, George Patton, if you deviate from this dream or if you fail in it. This is what he did as a very, very young person. That engine never quits. And in people like Patton that had these ambitions, there's no amount of acclaim, there's no medal, there's no financial reward, which is going to sort of quell the thirst. It doesn't work that way. So when World War II ended, and he got in trouble. He shot his mouth off and he was um, said very, very unfortunate things about former Nazis. And he said, we should put them back in power, or at least the bureaucrats, because they'll at least be able to keep the trains running and feed the people. And, um, and, and he just ticked a lot of people off. And it was nobody wanted to hear about going to war with Russia, which he really wanted to do. Strategically, we can look back and say, wouldn't that have been a good thing and push the Iron Curtain back? But he was really, he just wanted to keep fighting because that's all he knew. And it's not unknown amongst military leaders to keep generals or keep political leadership in place after a war. In fact, if you look back through history, that's quite a common thing to do. There's an agreement between the the military men. You know, you were fighting the war and there's a respect between them. Now, we know that as things start to unfold post-war and all the atrocities come to light, you start to paint a very different picture of that leadership to a point where none of them can stay in power. But at that point that Patton's making those comments, it might be slightly different. Absolutely. And it's a very good point. And I hadn't really recognized it, that it is almost, I won't say standard in every case, but the idea that at some point the military men must step aside and, yeah. and political leadership, for better or worse, must step in. Well, Patton was was relieved of command of his third army. The headlines that he had enjoyed, now he was just another general about to go out to pasture and be retired. And that was that. And then about 10 days before he's to come home, for the last time and essentially retire. He is in a car accident. He's paralyzed from the neck down and he lays in hospital in Luxembourg for about 10 or 11 days. His wife comes to be with him and suddenly this figure is sort of transformed and he becomes a tragic figure in a way. And now he's, the headlines are now about will General Patton live and this sympathy, almost global, for this general who was dashing and uh, old blood and guts and ivory handles and look at his how, how he dashes to the front. Then he's suddenly gone because he's been relieved of command. Now he's in a hospital bed. People lock into the tragedy of the figure, you know, and then he dies. So now he's restored in a certain way. And my aunt, to circle back, would say, this was God's favor to him. He died at the right moment, didn't he? He died at the right moment. He's now in, he's now in the stars and he dies at this period. And I've always thought that that's, I mean, someone like Dwight Eisenhower was Allied commander, later president of the United States. And, you know, he's obviously a greater figure historically than General Patton. And yet George Patton somehow exists in the popular mind in a different way, almost like a Daniel Boone, you know, or a folk hero. And that gives him a a kind of an intimate relation, I think, with Americans and American culture that George C. Marshall, perfect example, such an important figure in World World War II, later uh, Secretary of State. 
And yet most Americans, George C. Marshall, to remind me again, whereas Patton, for whatever reasons, oh, they think they know him. That's the one with the ivory handle pistols and, and, and yeah. the profanity. So in a way, this is a favor to him, you know, from the fates. And I circle back though, but at the end, he didn't quite see it that way because that motor that I spoke about, that engine that drives this unforgiving desire to finish and conquer and be the greatest, it doesn't forgive him at the end. And he's lying in bed and he's paralyzed. And, you know, there are flowers down the hallway from around the world, leaders and telegrams from everywhere. He knows that he is, you know, loved or at least respected. And he tells his wife among his last words on this earth, I can't believe that God is taking me out this way. And he says he always believed that the perfect way for a soldier to die was, you know, the last bullet in the last battle of the last war. And his example of that, it wasn't quite, it doesn't fit all the criteria in there, but Barnard B. is a very, very little known, but important figure in Civil War history. Barnard B. was a general in the first Bull Run battle, Battle of First Bull Run, when the Federals came through and they drove the Confederates back. And they initially thought that the, the battle was won. And all the reporters that were covering, they went, all the telegrams went out. Great victory for the for the Yankees and the, the Confederacy will be crushed within weeks. Well, while this is going on that day, General Barnard B. looks across the battlefield and he sees the Virginian regiment under one Thomas Jonathan Jackson standing there and holding ground. And he tells his men, look yonder, there stands Jackson like a Stonewall rally round the Virginians. And that turned the tide of battle. And that's where Stonewall Jackson got his name. And Barnard B., after saying those immortal words, took a mini ball through the forehead and was killed instantly. So my grandfather, in his way of looking at the world, said this was a blessing. Barnard B. was anointed by the fates. You said the perfect thing. You changed the tide of battle. And now you're going to die. And he said, rather, me lying in bed completely helpless, paralyzed, without hope of recovery, from the neck down, and utterly just, you know, completely immobile. Vertebrae, didn't he? Yeah, and he was done. I mean, there was no mobile, no, no mobility, no feeling, completely antithetical to the kind of man and kind of life he had lived. And he looked at his wife and he says, I must have done something wrong. And he says, literally, he said, I guess I wasn't good enough. And he died within hours of that utterance. And this to me is really important to understand about him. You know that the persona that he created, the drive that he inherited, first of all, and he fabricated in his soul was not going to ever let up. And it was not even going to let up on his deathbed when he had every tangible evidence of his greatness at that time. I mean, he had, you know, he had been acclaimed and he could read the headlines. General Patton, the great general, now how sad, he's paralyzed. He looked at his wife and said, this is a rebuke. I must have done something wrong. And then, quote, I guess I wasn't good enough. And when I tell that to people, they're kind of, I think it humanizes him in a way, you know, and you say, geez, that's, didn't expect that, you know. And so I think it really tells me as a, as a man older now than he was when he died, that there are complexities to all of us. And he had so many flaws. And he, you know, he had, he had, there were, he had bigoted points of view at times. And he was probably not a faithful husband. And he was certainly a difficult father. And yet there were things about him which were so admirable and a sense of self-deprecation, a sense of self-knowledge, a sense of humility that went hand in hand with all the ego and all the vanity that was very much a part of who he was. And to have him at the end assess himself with some misgiving, I think is very poignant. And it's how I choose to remember him because it, it makes him more alive and dimensional to me. Well, it brings back that young boy you mentioned at the beginning, doesn't it? It really the does. The fact his last words are, I guess I wasn't good enough, is exactly what you'd perhaps hear a younger man uttering. And he was chasing that dream for his entire career. But even with his death, the pattern story continues. Now, first of all, there's conspiracies yes. around his death. I think amongst the best ones I've heard, Bob, are I think it was Stalin that killed him because, like you said... Patton wanted to drive for the next conflict against the Soviet Union, or there may have been internal dynamics within the U.S. government that wanted him dead. What do you make of those conspiracy theories? It's a really interesting question. Of course, books have been written about yes. it, popular books. My grandmother, his widow, she was a wealthy woman, so she was able, to her own satisfaction, investigate privately, and she was persuaded that it was indeed a simple accident with a freakish outcome and that everyone else in the vehicle was fine. His driver skipped the railway crossing turned left, hit the back of a truck, right. 
Patton's neck was broken. Right. He was sitting in one of those limousines, which has a different facing seats in the back. And there was a partition between the driver's seats and yep. him. And because he wasn't looking, he was thrown against it and he cracked his neck and immediately lost all feeling from the neck down. And as he said right away, he said, this is a hell of a way for a soldier to die. So he knew that he was in trouble. Was he killed? There were certain... What can find motives, whether among the Soviets, whether among American political establishment that didn't want this seemingly right-wing guy out there talking about more war and maybe disrupting what was beginning to develop a sort of a post-war American culture. And he was just seemed antithetical to that, as he would have probably acknowledged. It's certainly possible. And the other element being that my grandmother, when she was with him, never left his room. Except one time when she went down, finally, instead of having her meal brought up by his bedside, went down to the cafeteria and he died in that. And she came back and she was summoned that he had, he was dead. So did someone get to him rather instead of if the accident maybe had been predetermined or had been a plan that didn't work. So then somebody said, let's get some poison in him in his hospital bed. Possible. There is even potential in our family, in my grandmother's ethic. And again, she died before I was born and in her own diaries later, that living as an invalid was not something she would have wanted. Would she have maybe hastened him to an end, knowing that that's what he would have wanted? Maybe he asked her. We don't know. But for myself, I can only say that uh, is it Occam's razor or something, that the simple solution is usually the right one. Yeah. And I tend to fall back and say, I think it probably was just as it seemed. It was a very freak accident. There were obviously gaps and there were potential motives and there might have been, this could have happened and maybe that could have happened, but it probably happened in its most simple way, which is that he died as a result of his injuries, which was the result of a freak accident. But within the family, there is some understanding that it's possible um, that he would have gone out that way because he would not have been a, no one in those circumstances would be a happy person, but we know so many that survive it and, and, and lead lives of, of, of great contribution in under terrible circumstances. He would not have been able to do that. I think he would have said, this is terrible. I can't live this way. Get me out of here. And he might have said that literally to his wife and she might have seen to it. And the story doesn't stop there either because his wife, Beatrice, who has supported him as a, a rock through all these years, even through his philandering, everything mm-hmm. else that's going on, she now has to decide where he's going to be buried. And she wants to bring him back to New England, Mm -hmm. to Massachusetts, to near their family home. But I think it's quite telling what happens in the end. Well, what happened, traditionally, the soldiers that were killed in theater were buried in theater. And of course, those cemeteries, beautiful is not the right word, but it's the word I use because they are so powerful and poignant and they are thought of as American soil. I use beautiful as well. When you visit them, they are a tragic beauty, a sadness, but... It's an appropriate place for those people to be buried because there is, a place, there is grandeur and it's a place for thought and contemplation. Right. So Eisenhower, who had been a personal friend, despite that there were tensions between them, contacted Beatrice, the general's widow, and said, I'll make an exception for George and we'll bring him and you can have him buried at your home or wherever, wherever you choose. And that was initially the plan. And then she said, you know... I think he'd rather be buried among his men. So at, at Ham Luxembourg, where he is today buried, they initially buried him among just another white cross among the many white crosses, and literally among his men, without distinction, as at Arlington. Whether you're a four-star general at Arlington Cemetery or whether you are a, a private, you have the same cross. You don't, you don't get bigger or smaller. So that would have been where he was. What happened in the years that followed... People went to visit his grave exclusively, so they began to so they began to have just footprints all over other graves, and it, it was it was nobody liked that. It was unfair to the others and the other families. So he was moved to the front. So now, if you go to Ham Cemetery, his cross, which is the same simple, discreet white cross, is out in front, um, rather like a general at the parade ground. So there is some there is some something apropos about that. And then the last point being that his widow always wanted to be buried with him. And that was not permissible. Then you couldn't bring, you know, because every family then would want to do it. So in the early 1950s, my aunt, whom we spoke of earlier, Ruth Allen, and my father, George S. Patton IV, then a captain, I think, and my aunt's son, Michael, my cousin, Mike Totten, gathered up some of, after she died, she died in 1953, my grandmother, gathered up some of her ashes and flew across and went to Ham Cemetery, bribed the gatekeeper, went in in the middle of the night, with a trowel and dug a hole. My father dug the hole about 18 inches deep and poured the ashes in and put the dirt in and the little piece of sod back there. So anyone that visits that grave should know that Beatrice, a little bit of Beatrice Patton is there. And interestingly, my grandmother was also loved history. And when she was a little girl, she went to Egypt 
and uh, one of the Egyptian gods, and I'm no expert here, so I may stumble into areas I don't know perfectly, but Bast, B-A-S-T, it's a, it's a cat. And uh, that's the form that the goddess takes. And Bast is the goddess of happy death. And when my aunt and my father, my aunt would have known this, saw a black cat walking along the wall as they were burying my grandmother's ashes in my grandfather's plot, saw this and said, that's the goddess of happy death. We must be doing something right. And this moment is blessed. And there the story ends. And all tied in with their spiritualism. Yes, very much so. Um, my grandmother, less so, though. She, was, she, had some, she had some funky beliefs, but she was very earthbound. She used to say, I'm not like these crazy patents. The crazy patents were the ones. They believed in second sight. They believed in mental telepathy. They believed in reincarnation. They believed in ghosts. And, and, and my grandfather grew up in this world of mythology, dead Confederate, quote-unquote, heroes, and this dream I have of joining them, and then the spiritual side which sort of makes it all sense. <laughs> Gives we, it sense. And when we look back at his life and his death and his legacy, we can safely say that you know he, he has become one of America's, if not America's, greatest <clears throat> general. And I think that's reflected in the fact that the cues to go and see him in rest and then his grave, you know, they were endless for days. And I've seen pictures of, of rabbis recently released from concentration camps, still in their concentration camp jackets, going to visit the grave of Patton. And the French, didn't they offer to have him interned into Napoleon's tomb. Is that true? I don't know that story, so I can't neither confirm nor deny, unfortunately. But I will say my particular perspective on Patton, the book I wrote, it's about five pages on World War II. You know, I really, I try to tie it together. It's the family side of things. But I obviously have read a great deal and, and try to understand him. As a practitioner of the military arts, shall we say, he really was standalone great. I, I, I can tell you, give you much detail on his flaws and his unfortunate points of view sometimes. Um, fortunately, it's always attached with humility. But as a military man, if you look at the things he spoke about um, and the things he foresaw in battle, it's, it's pretty amazing. I mean, the, it's often talked about the fillet gap, which was when uh, they had a chance after the Normandy invasions and the breakout where he was um, coming around the southern flank. He said, I can cut off all the defenders of the Normandy, you know, the German defenders before they can retreat back into Germany. And Eisenhower had much pressure with the Allied command. And among, you know, the Brits were here up north in Montgomery and everyone wanted you know, more supplies. And they, want, they decided to move in a straight front. And that idea just was anathema to Patton. He said, no, he said, you've got to use maneuver. And so that, he, had, he saw moments that were, were or were not properly you know, exploited. We never know how they turn out. Um, but I think it, historians really do say that he devoted his life to study and understanding of generations and decades and millennia of, of, of strategy and what worked and what didn't, as well as just leadership. And the two together really came together in him in a not accidental way. I mean, he really was, for all of his intrinsic genius, which I think he had, he studied, he learned, he corrected. And this was something that I think really sets him apart. Um, and then when you add all the idiosyncrasies of, of his character and the gifts and the flaws, you get the original figure that, that lasts today. But your mention about the rabbi is important to me. When the book came out, in the, when I first wrote it in the mid-1990s, I spoke about it in New York at a forum. And at that time, I was, you know, I was talking a little bit about some, you know, he's, there's, he, there was some anti-Semitism, particularly, it doesn't show up anywhere, and I'm not here to defend him by any means, but we have in his private diaries, there are literally five sentences, um, and that's five too many. That's yeah. you know, where he said, you know, the, the Jews, the Jews, right? Well, I spoke about that as you know, something that we as a family have to understand. And it's, it's, it's ignorant and it's unfortunate, but this is who he was and we must acknowledge it and just try to understand it. This younger man brings up after, you know, you have them shake hands afterward yeah. and they wanted you to sign the book or whatever. And he has his quite elderly, I, th I think it was his grandmother. And he's Jewish. He introduces himself as a Jew. And he says, this is my grandmother and she is a survivor. She was at the camps and she rolls up her sleeve and she sews me the, 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 the inked in tattoo of her serial number, you know, that horrific dehumanization, which Absolutely. that was. And she speaks to him and she, she spoke English, but as I recall, he translated to me and he said, my grandmother is saying she acknowledges that you want to tell your grandfather's full story, the good and the bad. And you, you correctly pointed out that he, you know, he was bigoted in certain ways. She will tell you, wants me to tell you that she understands this about him, but she also knows that she, he gave his life and his soul to saving us. 
And she said, that will always be preeminent in my memory of your grandfather, not the bigotry and not the unfortunate side of his personal character, which all of us share in different ways, you know. And that moved me very much because I felt corrected. You know, I should have said, you know, even so, whatever his flaws are, he he contributed in a mighty cause. And um, and thanks to him, the suffering that those imprisoned innocents endured, um, countless millions of them, uh, he did his best to end that as quickly as he could for them. And I, I had to remember it at that point, and I've tried to remember it since. And that was a very powerful moment for me because you know, I, I feel obliged to not create a saint here, you know? And sometimes I go too far the other way. Yeah. And see, she was correcting me mildly and saying, don't forget, he was one of the good guys still. It is a hard line to tread, but I think that is the perfect note to finish talking about Patton on. Bob, thank you so much for your time. And if any of our listeners do want to read more about the family history of the Pattons throughout American history, then where can they find the book and what's the title? The Pattons, A Personal History of an American Family, and it is available on Amazon in paperback. And by all means, uh, help yourself or go to your library and take one out. I, I, I would be pleased if anyone picked it up. It really is a story. He enters the tale about halfway through. It really is based on generations because my aunt, whom we spoke of, was um, a child fascinated by history. So she interviewed her elderly grandparents and aunts and gathered all their letters. So I, when I began the book, I had this huge trove of, of letters um, dating back hundreds of years that were saved by neurotics, basically, that were afraid to throw these things away. And that was the raw material from which I built the family story and was able to, I think, convey the foundation from which about halfway through, this little boy named Georgie emerges, and then he sort of, as is pretty predictable, takes over the rest of the tale. Well, Bob, thank you so much for inviting me into your home and for coming on the Warfare Podcast. You are always welcome. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening, but before you go, I've got a very exciting special offer for Warfare listeners. Over on History Hit TV, we're building the world's best history channel on demand, and we want to share it with you. When you sign up for a monthly subscription using the code WARFARE, you'll get two things. You'll get two weeks free, followed by your first three months with 50% off. We release two exclusive new documentaries every week, including my new series, Traces of War. And you'll get access to every episode of our ever-growing podcast network, ad-free. So you can listen to Warfare without the interruptions, but also to all our shows like Matt and Kat on Gone Medieval or Tristan on The Ancients. To sign up, just follow the link in the show notes. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.